This podcast is brought to you by the Los Angeles Inner Group of Overeaters Anonymous. Please visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three podcast feeds of over 200 sound files of individual speakers as well as events such as retreats and workshops. You'll also find order forms for ordering CDs of many of these speakers through the San Fernando Valley Inner Group of OA. Finally, we have a donation button where you can contribute to keeping this valuable service continuing for yourself and others. Again, our website is www.oalaig.org. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, John Kay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I usually start, what we always, I always learn my first program is to thank the person who asked me to speak, and so I'd like to take a moment and thank me for asking me to speak. <laughs> Actually, thank the person who couldn't be here at the last minute. Uh, my name is John. I am a compulsive, grateful compulsive overeater. And, uh, you know, when I first came in, when I would hear people say they were grateful, I would roll my eyes, and you know, because I was like the ultimate cynic. I, I used to always say I was, I had the triple, uh, the trifecta of cynicism. I was an alcoholic comedian from New York, and when you put those three things together, uh, you know, anything that just hints of being schmaltzy, I'm just going to roll my eyes and go, God. But I also look and know how grateful I really am today. I was thinking about it. I, I, I got a new morning regimen that helps me with, you know, they talk about meditation in the morning. And, and I've got this great meditation tool. It's about this big and it's covered in fur. And she needs to go out for a walk every morning. And I've just said, this is perfect. This is God doing for me what I've tried to do for years and get into a meditation routine. And so we go out in the morning. And I was thinking about how many things I'm grateful for um, Number one of which being that I have two diseases which should put me in the grave and should have me in a grave right now. And thanks to uh, two guys back in the 30s meeting and God playing chess so that they met, uh, I'm able to get recovery from alcoholism. And then later when Roseanne started uh, OA in 1960, you know, I was able to get recovery from my compulsive overeating. And I... uh, you know, there but for the grace of God, any of us could have been born a generation back and we're screwed. You know, we're just screwed. There's no help for us, you know. Um, or two generations if you're if you're an alcoholic. And um, and I realize just how that is a wonderful thing. I mean, and how grateful I am because I've gone pretty much my entire adult life now. You know, I've got 26 years of sobriety. I've got 26 years in this program, about 14 years of abstinence. And I'll talk about the difference between those two numbers a little later, but even though I only have 14 years of abstinence, I was abstinent the great majority of the time before those 14 years and maintaining a reasonably normal weight when I had no hope whatsoever of maintaining anything other than a very abnormal weight for the first 25 years of my life, except for the short period where I I got into alcohol instead of food, and then the two of them just ended up feeding on each other. Um... But way more important than that is the way I deal with life now. You know, when I hear people talk about being a grateful compulsive eater, again, you know, I can be cynical, but I know if I hadn't been there, if I hadn't had this happen that got me to work the steps and the stuff that's in this book, I would not have that, and I wouldn't have the kind of life I have. Um, I am happy most of the time. I am content most of the time. I am serene, reasonably serene most of the time, and... Before I really did the work in these steps in the big book, I walked around 
First of all, I was the biggest piece of shit on earth, on legs, and I walked around, and that's the way I felt about myself. And incredible self-loathing, and I was angry. I used to always say I walked around five degrees off of boiling all the time, which meant I would seem perfectly nice to you as long as nothing caused me to go up to those five degrees, but that five degrees would happen very often, and I'd be very angry. And, and I just, just didn't like myself and all that stuff. And a lot of that... Uh, just was lifted by doing the work that's in this book. You know, I mean, this is one road, road-weary 12-step uh, book here, the big book uh, that I'm holding. It, and it has, this, I've had this book since I came in, and to show that I'm in AA, you'll notice there's a coffee stain on it. Um, and it, I, I had, I pasted on the front of it, Don't Panic, which is, uh, this is from the ad for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and this is my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Because it gets me through everything. I always like my, my favorite. Everybody's got a little favorite thing that they read from the big book, and this is mine. But we are not a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist upon enjoying life. We try not to indulge in the cynicism of the state of nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. Um... And it, this just this whole thing, you know. We are sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it once was for, for many of us. But it is clear we made our own misery. God didn't do it. Avoid, then, the deliberate manufacture of misery. You know, and we are, you know, we are miracles of mental health, you know. The deliberate manufacture of misery was the story of my life for many years, you know. I had, a, I had my first AA sponsor said one day, you know, John, if you, can't, if you can't feel good, you'll feel good about feeling bad. And I thought about how I would get into that, this whole deep thing. And thanks to, to work in these steps in the program, a lot of things have changed about me because I should either be dead from... from any one of a number of drug things or drinking or ODing or, cr- or crashing my car or worse, having it happen to somebody else. Or I should be, if I hadn't found alcohol, I'd be five, six hundred pounds and probably dead already, you know. And um, over when I'm, when I'm in AA, I just want to show you how misunderstood this disease is, my compulsive eating disease, from people who should know better. I was in an AA meeting, I don't know, about six months ago. And I said, you know, I've got to leave. I've got to go speak at an OA meeting. And the guy looked at me. This guy's got 20-some-odd years in AA and goes, you're an OA, but you're not fat. And I'm like, yeah, you're an AA and you're not drunk. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Duh. And then he went, oh, yeah. But there's somebody who should know better and doesn't get it. And if he can't get it, if he doesn't get it, then we shouldn't expect anybody else to. God knows doctors don't, other people don't, and it's, it's, it's okay. I don't care anymore. I know that this works for me and that's all that matters. And... Um, and don't get kidded in AA meetings about, oh, you're going to OA. What happens if you, have a, if you have, go out uh, uh, on a slip? They find you, you find you in, a, in an alley with a bag of Twinkies, you know. And, and that's when I tell them that I've buried two sponsees in this program, and I haven't buried any in AA. Um, one sponsee I had named, named Dan C. They found him dead. He was on a massive relapse, and they found him dead in a chair with all of the the cellophane things in his goodies around, dead of a heart attack, which is essentially the way I thought I would end up dying or have a stroke or something like that. And uh, the other one was Jim B., in fact, from Connecticut, where I was from. And Jim uh, was about five, 600 pounds. And Jim died in a fire, you know. And when I had thoughts of how I could die from my overeating, that one hadn't occurred to me. But you know what? In life, there's going to be times when 
you have to move fast. And it's literally a matter of life and death. And in Jin's case, it, it literally was. And the thing is, I remember ta- having long talks with Kim. Because Kim was like my mental doppelganger. He and I thought alike. We had that same sarcastic sense of humor. We were sharp and, and funny and... I told him, I said, Jim, the only difference between me and you is I was given the gift of alcoholism, that I got alcoholism first, or I definitely would have been five or 600 pounds. I switched at one point, and it, the good, if there's something good to be said about alcoholism or, or drugs or anything like that, is it grabs you by the hair, and it slams you down into the pavement, and then pulls up your bloody face and get, it says, okay, get it? <laughs> you know, and, and hopefully, if you have any sense, you go, oh yeah, this is a problem. The trouble with food is, is it works so slow. It works so subtle. And the smarter you are, the more your brain makes accommodations, begins to accept, continually accept more of what was previously unacceptable things to you. And you constantly move the goalpost. You only look in the mirror from here up. And all of these things. And I remember saying to Jim, if I told you, if I could get in a time machine and go back to when you were in college and tell you you were going to be 600 pounds someday, you'd tell me I'm nuts. You know, because when you're 200, you say six, and that's never going to happen. But two to 250, 250 to 275, 275 to 300, you know, um, they've done these, these, these things, scientists have done these things where they, they'll take a live frog and they'll bring it down toward boiling water. And frogs are pretty smart, and they sense that I'm being brought toward a pot of boiling water, and they start to, like, wiggle and try and get away. But you can take that same frog and put it in a pan of room temperature water and slowly bring up the temperature until it's boiling and the frog is dead and he'll never try and jump out. And that, to me, is the perfect analogy for this disease. It just slowly keeps putting up the temperature, but does it slow enough where you will accommodate? And that's what, in my opinion, makes this disease way harder than my, my alcoholism. And I don't, I'm not minimizing it, uh, alcoholism and my drinking and all that because it took me well over a good year once I set my mind to it to, to finally get some sobriety under my, my belt. But I always say that getting, getting abstinent was ten times harder than getting, than getting sober. But staying abstinent is a thousand times harder than staying sober because I was a stand-up comic for 15 years. I was in clubs every night with some drunk who had to tell me this long-winded 20-minute joke with a drink right under my nose, and it didn't make me want to go out. But I've had abstinent meals where I wasn't in a fit spiritual condition where that's, I want to keep eating, you know. And that's the problem is that I can put down the alcohol, never work the steps, and I may stay sober. My mother, God bless her, she passed away last year. She probably had had a drink five years more than me. She didn't work any program. She had nothing I wanted in terms of the way she lived her life. She was just not a very happy person. But she had had enough of a bottom, and alcohol didn't have to be near her, and she was able to not drink to the end of her life. But I don't think we're afforded that luxury. We have to do the work if we want to stay abstinent. But way more importantly, it would be miserable to not do. You know, to me, to live the way my mother was living, and, and okay, she's not doing her substance, but she's miserable, and she's just having a lousy time, I wouldn't want that. I'd say, just, might as well just go drink it, you know? At least you can get a nice buzz on, you know? But that's the thing is that everything that I ate over and everything I drank over can be fixed within this book and within the steps if I'm willing to do the work. And the thing is, is I got to do the work. You know, I I I can't I can't minimize it. You know, and that's the other thing about this disease. It wants to minimize it. For God's sakes, it's just food. For Christ's sakes, we're not talking heroin. We're not talking cocaine. It's just food. Well. 
You know, they did a study a while back, and I read that, that they gave rats a bunch of different addictive substances. And you know what the two most addictive ones were? Nicotine and sugar. Above cocaine, above heroin, above all these other things, nicotine and sugar were the two worst ones. So I, I get that this is part of, of, a par, a part of my problem, you know? And the other thing that I really feel grateful for, in addition to living at this time and having a solution, is that I'm living in L.A., and, and for those of you guys who have always been in L.A. and have always been in recovery in L.A., you have no idea. Because I came from Connecticut. When I first came into the program there, if you had a year, you were an old-timer, you were leading marathons. Because I had a year, I was leading marathons, and I was batshit crazy. <laughs> you know, I had nothing anybody would want, I would think, except I was thin because I was 26, had a metabolism of a hummingbird, so I lost the weight really quick. And everybody, ooh, he lost weight, that's it, lead a marathon. I had no, I couldn't couldn't give you the steps in any order. I didn't do any of the work. I had a sponsor when I first came in, and then he went out, and I never bothered getting another one because I know what I'm doing, you know. And, and then meanwhile, you look around here. You know, I'm at kitchen sink this morning, and we do, they do what, what they call a count-off. You know, how many people have more than a year? How many have more than five years? How many have more than ten years? And this is, you know, and after ten years, there's still 25 hands up. And after 20 years, there's still 10 or 15 hands up. And after 30 years, there's still about five hands up. And I just sit here sometimes and go, this is science fiction to me. You know, this is science fiction anywhere except here. You know, there's a reason why, you know, that birthday party we have every year in February, why we get five or six hundred people, and a lot of them are from out of town, because this is ground zero, you know. They had um, the... Uh, national convention this year. They have a, They used to have a national convention every year. Now it's every three years. They have one in Philly. And I think they got about 1,200, 1,500 people there. But that's for a national thing. But I would bet almost any amount of money that the average amount of time and program there was nothing like you get when you come to the birthday party, you know. And so any of you guys who are new, a couple of you guys who are new here, we have this thing every year. It will be on February 22nd through 24th. It's right at the LAX Crown Plaza, and it's, we keep it there so that people coming in from out of town, it's very simple and, and economical for them to just come in and they have a shuttle bus over. But you'll see people from all around the country, and it's a phenomenal. If you need a boost to your program, uh, I just really recommend it. I don't mean to get off on a, <laughs> a thing about that, but it's important because for those of you who have been coming to this meeting, the meeting, this meeting is taped, and we've been putting these, these speakers up. And for the last two years, these speakers have an average of 22 years in program. You know, 22 years in program. And I'm, I got in this last year, by listening to these people, I get what the huge difference is. You know, I have 26 years in program, and you know what it's worth in terms of my day-to-day absence? <laughs> you know, get up. I have to not eat the same way I did on my first day. I have to not do the exact same things I didn't do on my first day. The one thing it does is it gives you just a little more perspective. It gives you a, a, like being able to pull out and look down at the maze a little differently. And, and it gives me the ability to discern a slight different take on things that you hear from these people um, that have got 20 some odd years. You know, one of the, 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 the phrases you'll hear in, in program is, there's as many ways to work OA as there are people in the program. Well, I think that's true from about zero to about five or seven years. But if you go up and you listen to those, and there's, like I said, over 100 speakers there, 
you'll hear a commonality that's really very, very similar. Yes, they may eat differently, they may have different ways they do certain things, but they're both approaching the program, all approaching the program in the same way. They're taking it very seriously. The absence isn't something that they get up and go, oh, I broke my absence yesterday, but I'm getting back on the horse and I'm not beating myself up. It would be a big thing for them. And it's got to be for me too, you know. Just like breaking, breaking my sobriety would be a big thing to me. And... They're also much more step-oriented. They're more into this book. They're into realizing, you know, and I'll t- I'm not going to give you a food log because everybody's heard, a lot of you have heard my story and heard the food log, and, it, and it's totally, totally unspectacular in terms of what I ate and how I did it. But, you know, I just, I, I, you know, I figured I'd talk more about, once I got the program, because I messed this thing up every way that it was to mess it up, and thank God, you know, they say God, you know, God uh, smiles on trunks and small children, and the, I really believe that in a way because I, 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 I made some of the classic mistakes that should mean I should be out there and have given up on this program, and I, and I was able to get it. You know, uh, I came in the first time into this program. Again, I came from AA first because I, I was I was an overeater since as far as I can remember. I went through a, a short alcoholic phase, and I don't use that phrase to minimize my alcoholism, but it was a phase that I went to. I, I would say I, took, I started taking my sugar in the liquid form for a while, and um, then I, I, it slammed me down, and then it got me to realize, wow, I've had an addiction problem my whole life. It just happened to be in a more, you know, a food form before that, and that's when I came to AA, and uh, you know, the absence fairy hit me on the head that first time, you know. And I, I understand I have a classic AA, OA story. You know, the classic, and I've heard this, if I haven't heard this once, I've heard it a thousand times. Gee, I came in, it was easy, my absence came easy, everything was great. Then I, I lost my absence and I've been slipping and sliding and slipping and sliding. And that is like a classic story. And I, what I realized is that is what happened to me and it absolutely mirrored all of my diets. You know, I used to say, oh, no, no diets work. No, that's not true. All of my diets did work once. And then, on the second time around, they didn't work because I got into it. And the same thing happened with OA. I came into OA, okay, oh, this is new, we got something new. And I took my brain out and I put it on the side. But then when I, I, came, I had my slip and I came back, then my brain wanted to, oh, I'm going to decide what I'm going to do here. I know what the steps are and I know the traditions. And, and then it didn't work, you know. And we got a great, you know, if you guys have ever heard Marcy, she spoke here a couple of months ago. And Marcy, Marcy actually runs a, Joe and Charlie Bigwick workshop, and I, she quotes something, I think it belongs to her AA sponsor, who says, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. And it was so true. I want to make all the decisions about what I'm doing, yet me making this, you know, when I came in AA, they, they told me, your own best thinking got you where you were the day you dragged your ass through this door. So if your thinking could have done it, you'd have done it already, you know. And I had to be willing to take direction, say, you know what? Obviously, I don't know what I'm doing after all this time. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. I used to say I was open-minded, but what that meant to me is I'll listen to what you have to say, and if I agree with it, then I'll do it. You know, that was my idea of being open-minded. What I realize now is real open-mindedness, I mean, I joke that I said some of the stupidest ideas I ever heard were said to me by a sponsor. And I'd hang up the phone and go, that's the stupidest goddamn thing I've ever heard, but I did it anyway. You know, I was trained with that bitch and moan and do it anyway, you know. And I would do it anyway, and then when I was done, go, that's exactly what I had to do. 
and I couldn't see it going this way, but I could see it going back that way. And the good thing about that kind of thing is it begins to reinforce itself. You start to be willing to do things that you don't think are going to work because you have enough empirical proof that that's worked in the past. And um, so I came in and I had that, and like I said, I was leading marathons, and then I ended up having a slip, and then, then I slipped and slid, and then I actually got pretty much back on the beam for a long time back east, and then I got married, my, my first wife, and we came out here to L.A., and it all fell apart. Uh, I just I couldn't hold on to abstinence. I was slipping and sliding, and I was nuts. And I knew all this stuff about program, and I was using every bit of it to reinforce my disease. My, you know, the thing that drives me crazy is I can pick up and read something. I've got this great brain God gave me where I can read up on a subject and become conversant in it really quickly. But this is the one place it doesn't work. You know, it's like it's like the old uh, was it Wiley Coyote trying to work on the you know sawing on the branch that you're sitting on. You know. Um, I can't use, I can't think my way ahead of this because my disease, I remember quoting the big book as to why I went out and ate the night before. I swear to God, if that isn't insanity, but I did it, you know. And I remember I was leading the artist in absence meeting in Hollywood. I was living there, and I'm, I'm the secretary of that meeting, and I'm a delegate at another meeting, and I'm a sponsor of two people, and I've got a good sponsor, and I'm leaving the meeting, and I'm stopping at the donut shop on the way home. And then I'm driving home going, why am I doing this? If I, I'm not sentenced to OA. You know, in AA, you can actually get sentenced to have to go to meetings. If, if I don't want to do this, just stop doing it. Yet, I couldn't see that's exactly where the disease grabs your brain. It convinces you to do what you really don't want to do, and then it convinces you it was your idea. And that's what makes it so evil in a way. Because then, the next day I say, oh my God, why did I do that again, you know? And I slipped and I slid. And part of the problem was how I was working the program here. The big book, yeah, was this thing, and I would go to a big book, I'd go to a big book you know, uh, meeting, and we'd read a, a, you know, a whole chapter at a time or something like that. And I, yeah, 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 that's good. I mean, I've read that before. Wasn't into it. My sponsor at the time, you know, wasn't pushing me on the steps. I mean, I had done a four-step in AA, but I wasn't doing any of the work. And when I look at back at it now, what OA really was for me at that point was group therapy. You know, I was coming into meetings. The idea of going to, the program to me was meetings. Okay, it was meetings and the fellowship and the friends I had made. And, and look, I understand that when you first come in and when you sit down for the first time and you hear people talking about crap that you thought you were the only one on the earth did. You know, I was the only one who ever took Wonder Bread and rolled it into a ball and ate it. Now I find out it's like a classic OA story, right? <laughs> Um, and a thousand of those, you know, and you go, wow, and you do feel a camaraderie, and you do feel a fellowship, and I had a lot of good friends, and we would, we would talk a lot on the phone, and we'd go out for fellowship, and we poo-pooed the guys who would get up to talk about the big book. I remember Fred was always this guy, we'd always, oh, that big book thumper again, and, you know, we laughed at the big book thumpers. We were hip, slick, and cool, you know, except we were all slipping and sliding our asses off, you know, but we couldn't, we couldn't admit it. We would talk about it, and we, we would try that positive reinforcement. Oh, don't beat yourself up, you know. I can look now and know, and I, I have a name for it, and it's not a sexist thing, but I call it mommy and daddy love, and it doesn't, it's really not a, there's some kick-ass daddy love people who are female in AA, meaning mommy love is the kind of thing that says, oh, don't beat yourself up, it's okay, you know. And the trouble is my disease loves that. It just wants, give me more of that. Yeah, that's it, I won't beat myself. In fact, I'm going to go out and eat again tonight, and I won't beat myself up tomorrow about it either. What daddy love is, and the key word here is love, 
is say, yeah, you did screw up there. What, you know, what do you think you did wrong? How can we change it? You know, all I ever wanted to hear was positive reinforcement. Oh, get back up on the horse. And yeah, in other words, my disease can take all the best intentioned things and turn them into, and this is why i got to keep eating. And I, I was just slipping and sliding. I was also the, the absolute quintessential the, uh, bullshit artist of program slogans. I, was, I had the amazing movable abstinence. You know what my abstinence was? Whatever I did today. <laughs> you know, I had, you know, so I had three, you became the, one of the big lines you hear for a long time. I had three meals and a snack, three meals and a snack. Well, that meant I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and anything I ate after dinner, that was the snack. It went from six o'clock until I passed out. Well, that's not a snack. You know, that's just binging for the rest of the night. And, I played all these games. I look at it now and I go, you know, you, you know, it, the way I describe it is, is imagine you're on a, you're in a rowboat, you know, you're in a lifeboat and it's bouncing up and down on heavy, choppy waves, and uh, you know, and the, you know, the, the lifeboat is OA and abstinence. Well, every once in a while, you may get your ass pitched out into the water. And what you've got to do is climb back up in the boat, look around and say, man, that wasn't good. How could I make that not happen again? And you try and figure it out. But guess what? You still can get your ass pitched out again. But you keep climbing back up and getting in it. Well, what I had done is I started drilling holes in the boat so that the boat, the, the boat sides would get down to water level. And I could say, see, I'm not getting thrown out of the boat anymore. But what did I have? I didn't have anything. I just... This abstinence that Henry VIII could have followed, you know, and that's, that, it was insane. So what ended up happening is I ended up going to another food program for about seven years, and it was a very, they had a, you know, a strict food plan, this is what you did, if you didn't stick to it, you weren't abstinent, this and that. And at that time, I needed to do that, because it had gotten to be such bullshit with me. I needed a seriously strong program at the time. And it worked for me that I got my food in order, I got abstinent. And for a while that worked, and it really helped me. And the thing that I liked about the other program is the people they took it as seriously as my AA people took alcoholism. And um, I, I did everything, and I got into like other programs like Al-Anon. I'm not going to go into it now. But through that, after a number of years, I realized how I was using that program almost like as a a bat to beat myself over the head because anything that wasn't exactly perfect, I, you know, I, I, I always said I was, I was maintaining lower weight than I am now, but I walked around with a low-level guilt for seven years because I, I wasn't doing it right, you know. And so I, I came back and all those people who were hip, slick, and cool I was hanging out with were gone. You know who was still around all way? Those farts that were carrying the big book and who were talking about the steps and they were talking about everything. And one of the things that happened is once I started listening and really discerning those people, I started realizing those people are taking it as serious as, as, as my AA people take AA. And as serious, as serious as those people in that other program were taking the other program, I just didn't want to look at that at the time because I wanted to hang out with my buddies who none of them were. And it taught me a really important lesson that you can get almost any crazy idea that you come into these rooms with validated by somebody else, but it doesn't make it right either. You know, you're just two people who are screwing around with the food together. You know, or three or four or five. And, you know, one of the things I, I've just really just been enjoying for the last two years is listening to the people who are up here at this podium and how seriously they do take it and how they work their program and they, they do the same you know the people I really admire in this program you know whether you know, Jack or Carol or other people 
When I hear them talk, they say, the, they say they're doing the same damn stuff they were doing on their first day, you know. Yeah, they may be doing other stuff and they're growing, but they're still sort of doing the same things. And, and for me, that's what I do. I have a sponsor. I do what the guy tells me to. Sometimes I disagree totally with it, but I do it anyway. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's exactly like I said. I realize it was one of them. Sometimes it isn't, but that's okay. I learned to try new things that I would never have tried before, you know. Um, and the steps in the big book were the, were the key for me. You know, I really started getting serious. I've done some Joe and Charlie workshops. For those of you who don't know it, you go through the big book literally paragraph by paragraph, talk about it. It's really good. And, and doing the steps. I, I think I'll just talk a bit about the steps. Um, in terms of the first step, the powerlessness, um, it's the hardest thing to grasp in, 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 in any disease, but in this one more than any other. You know, the thing about this is we have most of us have great brains I've been around and I meet the people here way way above average intelligence most of them and it's the frustrating thing that you can have so much confidence in all these other areas of your life yet in this one little sliver when it comes to food you don't you know and the other thing is that I I used to say power I would talk powerless I'm powerless I'm powerless you beat me all the time I'm powerless over food powerless over food and then I'm going out every two weeks I'm going out every three weeks you know I'm powerless I'm powerless I'm going out well wait a minute well something's wrong there's an incongruency there because if if I'm really powerless how can I pick up because I'm, what I'm saying what I started doing is thinking it through this came through some writing I did like when I went out in the past, when I was in OA I didn't say Oh, that's it. Screw away. I'm done. I'm never coming back. I knew I wasn't leaving. So what was I saying? When I'm done, I will come back. And I will get abstinent again. Well, as long as that is an option. You know, when, we, when I first came in, I've been around a long time, you used to always hear, we don't eat no matter what. We don't eat no matter what. And uh, it was sort of a vehement way to say it. But I heard a nicer way of saying it. Somebody said, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option again, it'll always be the only option. It'll always be the path of least resistance. Who's going to want to go through emotion? You've got a choice of emotional pain, going to eat something you really like and which does a little something for it. Well, it's a no-brainer. And what I couldn't see was, I would say I was powerless, but I didn't believe it. You know why? Because I had the empirical proof that I was powerful over it. If I had put down that food and then got, uh, ate, picked up the food and then gotten abstinent and done it on a number of occasions, I had the proof I am powerful over it. But what I couldn't get is I needed to pull, pull the camera back. You know that great scene from Gone with the Wind where they're in a tight shot and the camera just keeps pulling back and back and back and, until there's Culver City out there? Um, I needed to pull back to realize I had huge chunks of abstinence. But I had really broken my abstinence years ago when I made it an option. You know, and as long as it was going to be an option, it was going to be there. Now, it might take a lot of steam to make that pressure valve go, but it was always going to be there, you know. I mean, most of us got the, got, get the concept that we're powerless over a bullet and a gun. You know how I know? Because I don't think anybody here has ever taken a gun and put it to their head, and as they're pulling the trigger, said, well, I'll start again on Monday. You know, we get, that's it. If I really believe I'm powerless, I've got to start to grasp that. And I need to see and acknowledge that, yeah, I can be powerful in the small sense of it. But as long as I'm making it an option, 
And that's going to be an option today. It's going to be an option next week and two weeks from now or four weeks from now. And I may get periods of abstinence, but I'm not going to have any long-term abstinence. And to me, that's where the real growth comes from. You know, coming up here and saying, I got this amount of time of abstinence. Is, it's, you know, for those of you who know, I, I was a stand-up comic, and I still do these OA comedy shows once in a while. We got, we're going to have one, and we do them about once every two years. And In fact, when I lead workshops and conventions, I'll sometimes do it as a Saturday night show. I'll do a little, like about a half-hour comedy thing. And one of my jokes is, you know, being the biggest, be, being a big shot in OA is like being the smartest kid in summer school. You know, <laughs> you know, big deal. You know, you must set the bar a little higher. You know, it's to sit there and be able to say, oh, I got this many years of abstinence just to impress you with how much. It doesn't mean anything. But what it's about is, is I got through 14 years of bullshit, got through 14 years of life without using that as an option. I got through the death of my mother last year, which was incredibly rough. I was on the phone constantly with my sponsor to my friends. I was going to meetings around the clock in, in Florida. Uh, I went through a divorce, you know, accidentally. I went through, I mean, tough stuff. And I know that every one of those things helps. It helps because it reinforces and makes it, you can look and go, well, God, if I get through that, you know, when, it still doesn't mean things don't come up and the food is, is it consider, and, you know, it's an option. But today it isn't. And so I needed to get that concept of the powerlessness and that my life is unmanageable. What I, what I know now is my life's always been unmanageable. Unmanageable. I'm just admitting it now, you know. I, all of my life has been, because I came in from child of alcoholism, it was a constant striving for some kind of control. control. And what it really was was illusions of control, you know. The, the real control is not there. You know, we all, we, we just want to think we have these control. You know, I, I had a friend who said, oh, you work for yourself. I could never do that. I need, I need the security of, of, of a job in a big corporation. I said, yeah, yeah, like maybe something big enough to be like the number five corporation in America, like Enron, where the people went in one day and literally came the next day and the lock was in the door. There's the illusion of control. These people thought they had a job forever and they show up and they don't. And there's, a lot of that, most of that, through all of our lives. And if I don't get some kind of a concept of a higher power that's looking out for me and that everything's going to work out okay, I'm going to go nuts. And that's where the second step came in for me. I came in an absolute stone-cold atheist. And the guy who helped me in the other program, you know, I'm debating, I, I can't be a part of this God, this religious group. Eh? Now, look, it's, and he said, it's spiritual. And I said, no, you see right there, it says God, 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 I'm pointing to him. We had one of these things just like that, except it was uh, a shade thing. And he goes, okay, leave it out. And it, it's like one of those science fiction stories like in Star Trek where you put the robot in a loop and it's just, huh? He said, leave it out. Leave out God. Right now your disease is looking for any reason it can to get out that door. Don't let it happen, okay? Nobody's ever going to make you believe anything. Nobody's going to tell you what to And it was the most perfectly worried thing the guy could have ever said to me. Because if he just said, oh, just keep coming, you'll get it eventually, my cynical, paranoid brain would have said, oh, you see that? The cult's going to get me one of these days. I'm going to have to get out of here because they're going to brainwash me. But by saying, you don't have to believe anything, it allowed me to crack that door and start to find a higher power I believed in, you know? I, um, I came from a very organized religion where, you know, the God was a he, it was a male, and I come from along the line of Irish trunks on both sides, so I don't have a lot of good examples of loving male relationships. So, you know, or as they say in my comedy thing, God was the guy on the top of the Sistine Chapel going, pull my finger, you know. I, uh, I don't, it didn't work for me. I, and even today, even though I will use the word God, 
and I will say it because it's shorthand, and I'll read the book as it's written, him, that kind of thing doesn't work for me. I had to come to some belief in something other than me. The other thing that was said to me is, the only thing I understand about God, kid, is you ain't it. Yeah, and that's important. I mean, I wasn't psychotically thinking I was God, but I took so much responsibility for things I didn't have to, you know? You know, if, 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 if you tripped on the way in, oh, there was something there I should have seen and I should have taken care of it. You know what I mean? So many things. And now I know, you know what? I have a higher power that's looking out for me. You have a higher power. The guy who's walking in is going to trip has got a higher power. My sponsee who slips has got a higher power. All I can do is be there as an example, you know? You know, when you boil this entire book and the 12 steps and all pages of this thing down, you know, in, in cooking, we call it reducing. Those of you who know what cooking is, you boil something down enough, you get a very, very concentrated form of it. I think it's the serenity prayer, you know. Ex- you know, accept the things I cannot change, have the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I had an old sponsor in, in AA who used to point to his skin and say, see that right there? There's your difference, right there. Skin in, everything you can change. Skin out everything you can't change. Meaning, the only thing I can really do is change me and my reaction to the world, you know? And and that's where turning my will and my life over to a higher power came in. Uh, I heard it, that was always so hard. I go, try to get, well, what's it mean to turn over? I heard the reverse said really well when they said, it's about just removing the blockage of self-will. Instead of thinking of turning your life over to God, just remove the blockage of self-will. Try and get yourself out of the picture, you know. Um, I, I look at this disease, and, and you, know, you know, everybody talks about the physical part, and they talk about the spiritual part, but there's that middle part that's the emotional part, which is another word for that, it's the psychological part. And two of the major components to me of my disease are immaturity, you know, over in AA, they'll talk about the alcoholic personality. I think it's just an immature personality, you know. I want what I want when I want it. I'm the center of the universe. Give me what I want, you know. I want to eat whatever I want, and I don't want to lose weight. I don't want to gain any weight, and, you know, I want to be exactly what I want. And the other part of this disease is narcissism, you know. Everything's about me. It's me, 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 me. And what this program gets you to do, just, it sort of shoves you out there and says, get the hell out of yourself. Then once you do start doing some of these things, you see the benefits. As I get more and more out of myself, I take things less personally. It's not about me all the time. I want to help other people, and I start to get what some of those things are about. You know, in the, if you ever read the Just for Today, they read the other program a lot more, and they talk about Just for Today, I'll do something good for somebody and not get found out, you know. There's uh, a guy named Maimonides who so that's one of the higher levels of what's called Siddhartha. And I believe in that, you know, doing things for others quietly, because that's where you build the self-esteem, you know. I did a fourth and fifth step, and I got to work on my character defects, which is hard, because that also requires faith. Faith that if I give these things up, there's going to be something to replace it. It's going to be just as good. Um, for me, the seventh, and talking about humility, that to me, as you know, you look at different things. It's so funny. When I pick this book up, there's all kinds of underlines and highlights that are in different stages of being faded or not faded, because different things have called to you as you grow. And I realize now, the seventh step, that humility thing, for me, that meant humiliation when I first came in, or it meant humility like a monk. Or a, and an old AA sponsor used to say, it's just having an objective view of yourself in the world. Not too high, not too low. You're just another bozo on the bus. And when I really started to get that, the self-esteem changes. I always had to be perfect, because deep down, I needed to make myself perfect, because I didn't feel anywhere near as good as you guys. Now, you know, I could forgive you and not me. 
And, you know, in the acceptance paragraph in the big book, there's a paragraph after it that says, when I criticize you or I criticize me, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. I always read, when I criticize you, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. Now I heard the other part. I'm criticizing me. I'm criticizing God's handiwork, too. I don't like the fact that I'm not perfect, but I, I'm more accepting of my humanness. And that, that stripped away the judgmenting uh, I had. I had so much judgment about everybody, especially me. And I changed some other things. I had an old sponsor who used to say, why is the most useless question in the universe? You think about it. If you get whatever why question you answered exactly the way you want it, you're right where you started. It didn't give you any, any satisfaction feeling. <laughs> but Chad, those are very rare that you get why answered the way you want. And when you don't get it answered the way you want, you're frustrated. It shouldn't be that way and all those other things. He said, just lose why and you lose a huge knot in your stomach. And, and I realized today it was really true. And, um, and, you know, I made the list of people I harmed. Thank God I had a sponsor who went, okay, take that off, take that off, take that off, because I want to, you know, I want to go do this dramatic thing. And then, you know, I continued to take uh, personal inventory. I was really good. I used to joke, I'm, I'm really good at the 10 stuff. I just wish I had to stop doing it so damn much, you know. And in the AA 12 and 12, they talk about restraint of pen and tongue and, and I always joke it needs to be changed to restraint of pen and tongue and send button because I, uh, I email way too many things that I should sit on. I'm much better about that. I'm much better about writing things and holding on to them now. You know, um, Harry Truman uh, used to write these nasty letters when he was mad, and then he, he would just take them and put them in his drawer. But just writing the nasty letter helped, you know. And then when he moved his desk to the Truman Library, uh, they found them all, and now they're on display. <laughs> um, and so I do prayer and meditation. I get up every day, I do that. I try when I go to sleep. You know, and these are things that are actually in the big book. When they say, well, it doesn't really give you a lot of ideas. Well, right in there, as we retire for the night, what do you do? When we awake in the morning, what do you do? And then, uh, you know, the, the, the twelfth step of having had a spiritual awakening as a B result, not a result. That's the most mis. My old sponsor says the most mis uh, said thing. The result is the spiritual awakening from which all else comes. And then to carry the message, I try and do things like this virtual speakers thing that we do. I try to do that because it helps other people. It helps other, and, and I really believe that's the big part of it is trying to help other people and, and, and to do these things. But because this is what's going to keep it going, you know. I was at a, you know, there was a meeting we had that broke, uh, that that sort of discontinued in that other meeting once and, uh, of the program. And uh, I said, gee, I'd love to be sitting at outside the door when people show up at that meeting and the door's locked. Because I want to do the old George Bailey thing. Well, you kept coming in and out of the program, and you weren't there to sponsor Joe. And Joe wasn't there to sponsor Fred. And Fred wasn't there to keep this meeting going. And it's all your fault. You know? But the truth is, I need to do this so that there will be a meeting here when I want it. You know? And for me today, I, I just believe, and I'm going to try and... I get, should we wrap it up? Okay. Um, that... Um, we need to work together and help each other and to do it in loving way but be willing. You know, I gained 50 pounds in this program. Nobody said a word to me, you know. Nobody said a word because it's such a scary thing to have to go up and say something to people. And I look now and go, you know what, if I had a friend I really liked and I'm talking to him and as he turns around to walk off, I see a big, black, ugly mole on the back of his neck in a place he could never see it, wouldn't I go up and say, is something wrong? Do you know about this? Do you want to talk? Can I help? But we don't do that with our own with our own people who are dying here of this disease, and I and I think that's another important thing. So I try and do all these things, and they really help. And I'm just going to read one last thing, and then I'm going to get off because I know Chase is going to kill me for going long. 
On page 450 of the new edition, the fourth edition, is one of my favorite quotes. It says, I, had to reali- I realized I had to separate my sobriety from everything else going on in my life. No matter what happened or didn't happen, I couldn't drink. In fact, none of these things that I was going through had anything to do with my sobriety. The tides of life flow endlessly, for better or worse, for good and bad. I cannot allow my sobriety to become dependent upon these ups and downs of living. My sobriety must have a life of its own, and my absences must have a life of its own, because shit's always going to be happening. And if I make my absence contingent on it, it's only a matter of time. So thanks for letting me share.